If you know, please join me in prayer. Almighty Father Yahweh, we come before you on this Sabbath day, a day that you have set aside to memorialize your creation, a day that's been kept for thousands of years by those who are faithful to you. We pray, Almighty Yahweh, that you'll bless those that are here, those who would hear the message, maybe it instill within them a greater desire to follow. We pray that you'll continue to watch over your people. Be with, be with those that have a special need and those that are suffering, that you would be their Yahweh Rapha. We pray that this day would be a blessing and encouragement to all those who are keeping it as you have commanded. We pray also that you'll continue to watch over all those who are seeking you and may their understanding be increased as they strive to follow you in the footsteps of Yahshua the Messiah. In this prayer and petition we ask in Yahshua's name, Hallelujah. You may be seated. Special greetings to uh, all who are tuning in or listening in or wherever you're from. And uh, welcome to the service today. In reaching out to the world, we spend a lot of time trying to show the truth of the word because there's so much error out there. We point out the mistakes in common teachings, and we advocate a return to the pure word, as uh, Jude tells us in uh, 1 through 3. But at the same time, we have another goal, and that's to instill with all who hear to follow, to have a desire to follow the word. Not just hear it, but do something about it. You know, this faith is active. Just as the faith of Israel was an active faith, the Israelites were constantly on the move toward following the truth. You can look at it, all the sacrifices they were to keep, the Sabbath and and all the other uh, things they did at the temple. I think you see it today. It's an active thing. We went to the the Wailing Wall, and uh, even in their prayers, you know, they're, they're doing this. They're getting involved in their prayers. Of course, we have a different slant on what the Wailing Wall really is, but that's another story. But uh, it is an active faith. It's not passive. It's not go to church for a half hour on Sunday and that's it for the rest of the week. You've fulfilled your obligations and now you can do whatever you want. Believe me, we were there one time and it's not what the scripture teaches. The percentage of those who dig deeply into the Bible is very small. I'm talking about getting down to where the language lives. How many are willing to do that, to study that deeply into the word? Those who do so, I believe, are the cream of the crop. These are the ones Yahweh's calling. These are the ones who want to know and comply with their lives, to follow it. Most just rely on tradition and popular interpretation and don't allow the Bible to teach itself. They go somewhere else for the teaching. Some teachings of man or tradition With a little effort, you can come to a greater understanding of the word. And that's why we had the Restoration Study Bible published, so that people can dig in themselves and look at the notes and find out, is this what the Bible is actually saying, or have people got things confused? So we use scholarly helps, references that reveal not only greater insight into the truth, but to show that this word has errors in the translation. Now, the original, of course, does no errors. The, the original autographs, the, the, the original manuscripts from which we get our Bible uh, is error-free, but we don't have those. You know, that, that, they were gone a long time ago. They were either worn out or, or lost or whatever. So we, we do the best we can from the resources we have. And when you do that, you've got to go back to the languages. A clear case of this is the use of the word Easter in Acts 12.4. It's coming up. You know, three weeks, we've got Passover. Can you believe it? Three weeks. It's coming fast. We're already first week into March. So I would advise those who plan to come to get your reservations in and uh, plan to have a great time for the Passover and feast. But in Acts 12.4, the original word is Pasha, and the Hebrew, it's the Hebrew Passover. People don't realize that. Most modern translations have corrected this error, but not before millions are confused to think that Easter is a biblical observance. 
misled by a translation. It is Easter in the King James, but I, like I said, that's not the original word. And uh, so they, they get confused. You would hope that people would have read this verse, the one and only place that they find Easter in the whole Bible, let alone the New Testament, is in the King James. And wonder, what about the 28 times in the New Testament I read Passover? Uh, something isn't adding up here. Something's wrong. Passover in the New Testament. Passover in the New Testament. Huh. I thought that was just an old Hebrew observance. Well, their Savior was a Hebrew. He kept the Passover. He died on Passover as a, as a sacrifice for our sins. You've got to start putting the pieces together to start figuring this all out. Something doesn't add up. 28 to 1 is not a good odds for Easter, you know. Another overlooked verse is Hebrews 4.8, where the name J-E-S-U-S doesn't fit the context. If you look at the Hebrew, it's, it's Yahshua or Joshua of the Old Testament. What's that doing there in the New Testament? It's not talking about J-E-S-U-S. Well, the same error is made in Acts 7.45. It doesn't fit. But see, that's, a, that's an error that was in the translation. Don't get me wrong, there are no mistakes in the inspired text, but there are in any, every English translation of the scriptures, you're going to find some mistakes. It seems like when it comes to the English, that's when the problems enter in. I don't know about other, you know, French or anything, I've never studied it that way, but it's a fact that the Bible student has to be aware of because many of these translator failings have caused doctrinal derailments, not only today, but back through the centuries. You find them all over the place, perpetuated from generation to generation. And that's why we have to go back to the source languages. And you know, it, it's, it's amazing how some will look at the scriptures and think they need to add to them. Uh, the Bible adds, claims some amazing things about itself. First, it claims infallibility. That means no mistakes. Of course, in the in the original, that's true. Summed up in Psalm 19, two, two law psalms, two great law psalms, 19 and 119, if you can remember the, the numbers. They both basically harmonize the same way. The law of Yahweh is perfect. Psalm 19 is one of the great law psalms. But the greatest is, I said, is 119, where virtually every one of its 176 verses talks about obedience to the law in some fashion. Read it, every, every one of them. It's amazing how his laws, statute, judgments, and testimonies are there in every verse of Psalm 119. It's also an acrostic psalm, where each verse in the 22 sections starts with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. 22 sections, 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, successive letters. What an amazing complexity and design of Yahweh's word. Psalm 12.6 says the words of Yahweh are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of fire, purified seven times. In other words, complete and perfect. That's the number seven. Everything the word gives us is in terms of direction and life, is absolutely true. You know, you look back at, uh, at your life and you look back at uh, the words in the Bible and you find there's, it's so true. You can find it, admonitions and say, yeah, you know what? That applies to me. Everything in the word gives direction in life and it's true. It's infallible. John 17, 17 says the word is truth. Second thing the Bible claims about itself is inerrancy. Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of Elohim is pure. It's accurate. The oldest text we have, the Dead Sea Scrolls, proves that the source language of Hebrew in the Old Testament is accurate, where we get our scriptures. It's harmonized perfectly. Dead Sea Scrolls prove it. This was four centuries before Yahshua. Four centuries and these texts authenticate the manuscripts being used for translations today of the Old Testament. 
So we have our own verification from archaeology. So you can compare them with the Hebrew manuscripts and virtually identical. That's how careful those, those scribes were when they copied word for word. Made, you know, they didn't have, they didn't have uh, photocopiers. They didn't have machines that could boom, 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 put out the same thing over and over. They had to copy it meticulously from one to another. You'd have the, uh, the head of whoever uh, the, the, uh, the scribal team would read the scripture, and then they would write it down, and they'd have to check it. And if there's one mistake, throw that manuscript away, Start over again. That's how meticulous they were. Everything in the word gives us direction. Third, it's complete. From Genesis through Revelation, all 66 books make a total package. They all lead. They all tout the same message. And they all lead to the verification from Genesis to Revelation of Yahweh's plan. He says, three places in the Bible, Deuteronomy 4.2, Yahweh says, you shall not add to the word which I'm commanding you, nor take away from it. In the middle of the Bible, Proverbs 30, verse 6, same thing. Don't add to it. At the end, Revelation 22.18, we find the same prohibition against adding to or taking away from the word. Pretty serious stuff if you do that. And it's been done how many times throughout history? Yahweh doesn't need any outside help. Yahweh's word is sufficient and not of any private interpretation. You don't need to fiddle with the word. Nothing is more needed for spiritual life than this word. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of Yahweh. It's inspired. It's Yahweh breathed. That's what the word means. And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. How to live the way that Yahweh wants you to live. It's right here. It's right here. You don't have to add other things to it. These guys that say, oh, I had a dream last night. He told me. And I look at that and I compare it with scripture. And if it counters scripture, I say, well, I don't believe in your dream. Because Yahweh wouldn't do that. That's, uh, that's what uh, many are led to do. They try to say that, you know, he works through me, he speaks through me. I believe he inspires you to do things, but I don't, you know, when it comes to replacing the word, uh, I don't think so. The word is settled in heaven, it says in Psalm 119.80, forever. His word has been finalized. This is an authoritative book that doesn't need anything more. Although we also believe that, you know, the book of Acts, which is a history, basically, of the early assembly in the New Testament, it's a history of how they went around and uh, first uh, Peter and then Paul teaching the word, and it doesn't end like the others in the New Testament. It kind of drops you off. It's like there's more coming. Maybe we're going to be part of that, maybe in future times. Acts will be completed by what you and I do right now because we're part of that assembly that started in that book. It's an incredible book that gives the path to happiness. Get in line with it and your life is going to be filled with joy and fulfillment. Go counter to it and your life is going to be nothing but heartache. The same creator who put in place natural laws is the one who established moral and spiritual law. Break any law and it's going to break you. That's just the way it is. The scriptures present the only viable scientific explanation for the universe. Think about that. And it has not been proved false at any time. You can't find a single error in there. Oh, there's going to be the guys that are going to, you know, oh, look at it. doesn't, look at the big mistake here. Well, that might be a translator mistake, but the Bible itself is pure. And what it says is true. So I'd like to know why some of these brilliant scientists who believe the universe just happened by itself, I'd like to see them write a book detailing the universe and the nature of man, and in 6,000 years, look at it again and see how accurate they were. See if it's still true. You know, human nature doesn't change. So when Yahweh talks about living a life and not doing the things that we like to do, it's because our nature is the same as the nature of the believers 
four, five, six thousand years ago. It doesn't change. So it's accurate. It's up to date no matter what era you're in. The Bible speaks of the nature and behavior of man that is just like the nature of man at the dawn dawn of man's existence. It's as fresh as the day it was written. Human nature is always the same. His jealousies, his vanities, his greed, it doesn't end. We have to overcome that. We have it too, and we have to overcome that by the word. Whatever is in your heart will eventually come out in your actions, in your speech, whatever it might be. If you speak about the scriptures, that's where your mind is, where your heart is. And those who do show Yahweh in their hearts. So here we are committed to Yahweh in in this walk we're in, in a world of indifference. Yahweh's ways are not multiple choice. We find we've got to follow this. I remember I applied for a job one time. I really needed this job. I didn't have a job. And I had a a wife and a couple little kids. And I needed this job so bad. And uh, I was sitting around with about uh, 10 editors. And they were firing questions at me. And uh, they said, uh, one of them, in the conversation, I mentioned the Sabbath or Friday night. And they said, wait, 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 let's go back. You said something about you can't work Friday nights? I said, no, it's, it's the Sabbath. Sundown's the Sabbath. And one of the guys says, well, can't you just get a dispensation from your minister? It doesn't work that way, you know. I mean, some churches might do that, but uh, we follow the word wherever it leads us. And if it says do something, that's what we got to do. And we're blessed for it. So here we are committed to Yahweh in a world of uh, people who really don't care. We follow his instructions wherever they take us. Many won't agree about Yahweh's word and his laws and the standards that he has, the natural man resists submission to any authority, and especially to Yahweh. You may be told with disparagement that obedience is works righteousness. You're trying to earn your salvation. I'm not. I'm just following what he tells me to do. You know, I don't always do it perfectly, but I try. And what is so horrible about obeying the one you worship anyway? The horrible thing is when you don't obey the one you worship. At the core of that attitude is the fact that your commitment makes others feel guilty. You know, deep inside, they feel guilty. Well, you just think you're better than everybody else. No, don't, don't impute motives. I'm just trying to follow the word. I'm not trying to be any better. In fact, I feel worse (laughs) than most because uh, I see the failure. As Mark Twain said, the things in the Bible, uh, what's in the Bible doesn't, uh, how does it go? He said, uh, what's, it's not what's uh, not in the Bible that bothers me. It's what is in the Bible that bothers me. And that's how you feel when you start trying to practice what's there. And you find out you're not perfect and you need help. You need Yahweh's abilities and his grace to continue on. Well, the Bible says it's enmity in Romans 8, 7. The uh, New American Standard puts it this way, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward Elohim. It's just naturally that way. It's hostile toward Yahweh. For it is not subject to the law of Yahweh, for it is not even able to do so. Unless you can repent of your sins and humble yourself before Yahweh, you're going to have a problem getting in line with his word. We live by laws that regulate us every day. Without law, our society, every society would self-destruct. We see law operating behind what we eat, how we live, what we do, how we move, what we wear, how we drive. Law is behind what everything that we seem to do, our finances, our government. Our laws are behind what keeps us healthy and safe. Without them, you self-destruct as a society. Yahweh's no different. The natural realm has laws. Natural laws make life possible. 
the natural man, or the natural, I should say, the natural world has laws that regulate all of his processes out there doing things that Yahweh established at creation. Whether you're talking about animal life, plant life, astronomy, chemistry, physics, engineering, architecture, mathematics, everything is controlled and is kept in check with natural law. Macro life or micro life, it all responds to and is limited in a well-defined fixed way. And how can we think that we can have ourselves, our existence without it? How can we think that? And those that think that way simply don't want that way. When we move to the moral realm, suddenly people think everything is disordered. All at once there are, absolute, there are no absolute laws, at least in the uh, minds of the, uh, of the rebellious. Suddenly all is chaos. You can do whatever you want and still find harmony in life. Well, there's so many problems in, in uh, people's lives who don't follow that it... Uh, that certainly is wrong. You can see it all over the place. Actually, you can't. Break moral, spiritual laws, and you'll get discord, disharmony in your life, and suffer harm. No different than if you break physical laws, like defying gravity or drinking arsenic. There are built-in moral principles in life. Serious social problems come out when you ignore them. Did you realize that the Bible contains over 250 passages in the Old Testament as well as, as uh, 55 passages in the New Testament that require, that direct us to be obedient to Almighty Yahweh. New Testament, it's in there. In fact, uh, Dake's Annotated Reference Bible says there's 1,050 laws in the New Testament. Maybe not laws as we find like in the commandments but where Yahweh tells us what to do and what to follow injunctions 1050 and yet people say well I don't believe that's just works righteousness they speak of obeying Yahweh's statutes judgments let's look at the physical world for instance the Bible affirms that mass does not disappear it doesn't go out of existence. You can alter its forms, but it's still there in some form. They found that when you quit burning trash out in city dumpsters like they did when I was a boy, all you're doing is changing earth pollution to air pollution. It's still pollution. It doesn't disappear just because you burn it up. It goes to another form. This is the first law of thermodynamics. It says energy can change from one form to another, but it cannot be destroyed. Man has not been able to destroy it yet. There again, the Bible is accurate. The total amount of energy and matter in the universe remains constant. Constant. Merely changing one form to another. Does the Bible know anything about that, by the way? Listen to what Isaiah wrote thousands of years ago in 4026. Lift up your eyes on high, and behold, who has created these things that brings out their host by number. He calls them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power. Not one fails. Not one fails. Everything out there. He's in charge of it all. I believe his Holy Spirit is what holds everything together. He said he holds the earth together by the power of his spirit. When you find something twice or more in scripture, you're really boilerplating what it, what it says. That really confirms something. Here we find not only all that the stars and planets are named. Can you imagine? All the stars and planets are named. And he numbers them. He knows how many there are. The Bible says there's more stars than the sands of the sea. Each of those little Pieces of sand would have a name, like the stars, if he wanted to. But it confirms the law of conservation of mass and energy, that, that not one fails, the Bible says. There it is. Nehemiah 9.6 also reads, You have made heaven, the earth, and all things therein. 
the seas and all things therein, and you preserve them all. Ecclesiastes 1.10, is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new? No, it has already been of old. The Bible has been solid for thousands of years. The Bible also affirms another physical law that says, left to themselves, things break down. This one flies directly in the face of evolution. They become more disordered. Left to, left to themselves. They don't become more ordered, more sophisticated, more improved, better developed, more intricate. No. The law of increasing disorder alone proves evolution because it says things start from order and then they go to disorder. That's the nature of things in our, in our world. Not the other way around. In other words, everything put together will eventually fall apart. Everything put together by man is going to fall apart, not improve, not work better, not get more organized or complex. Build a sandcastle, and what's going to happen? Eventually, it's going to go flat. The wind and the rain and the waves are going to knock it down. Build a skyscraper. Eventually, it's going to rust and fall apart if you don't maintain it. It won't evolve into a space shuttle, but that's what evolution tries to tell you. We get more sophisticated. You know... <laughs> You look at the human body, you look at any aspect of the human body, it is so complex. And everything about it shows design. Everything works. Well, even with this virus we have, the body attacks the virus. It knows. These, these cells that go out, these soldier cells in your blood, they know, they can detect a foreign enemy, a virus, and they go and they engulf it. They engulf it and they digest it. How did they know that that was not a friendly guy, a friendly cell? How did they know that? They don't have a brain. They don't have eyes. They can't smell. But Yahweh made them so that they can attack germs that infect your body. That's just a small sample. Look at the eye and how, it's, how it is so complex that the physics of it alone show high a high degree, I mean, a miraculous degree of design. And yet they say it just, it just went from one thing to another. Uh, it just became, you know, as time went on, they hide behind billions of years. It, it got better and it got better and it, it changed and it found out this works better. So I, I always like to know how does that replicate then in the next, in, in the production of, uh, of the baby? How does that know that, okay, now this eye is not what you're going to be making. You've got to conform to the new how does that happen in the genetics of a baby? It's so, it's so ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. There's, there's so many things wrong with... Uh, but you see, they, they wanted something to replace Yahweh. They needed something that didn't need a creator. So they come up with this idea that things just happen by themselves. Nothing produced everything. I mean, it's, it's so... Uh, it's crazy. So anyway, it's, you know, it's really the dumbest uh, counterintelligent notion imaginable. Uh, incredibly, most eminent scientists believe it. Romans one twenty two says, professing themselves wise, they became fools. They exchanged the truth of Yahweh for a lie and worship and served the creature more than created creator and who is forever praised. See, evolution focuses entirely on things, on material things, trying to find a link between them and us that would support the hypothesis. It's a religion of the physical. You think about it, evolution is just a religion. It's just to replace the biblical religion. But where did the physical originate? Evolution has no answers. It has to start with something tangible. Yahweh starts with nothing. His spirit brooded over the face of the deep, and all of a sudden we got water. We got the planet. It, it's, uh, it's, its weak underbelly is exposed in the very start, that it doesn't make sense. It's impossible. And yet, I was told when I was in school, it's a fact. Evolution is now a fact. They've proved it. <laughs> it's, it's, so, 
Yeah, you know, all you got to do is look deeply into it and you'll see, wait a minute, this, this, can't, this can't be. Romans 8 presents this to us in very clear terms. He's, listen to what the Apostle, wrote, Apostle Paul wrote before any scientists had come up with it. It says the creation was subjected to nothingness. Yahweh created everything out of thin air. Evolution has to begin with something. Yahweh didn't. He began with his own power. When the Bible talks about scientific things, it's totally accurate. Even science fails to explain where this primordial soup came from. You know, and then the a lightning bolt, you know, a spark of life was struck. How did that happen? I mean, how did that? They still can't produce life in a test tube. They still can't do it. How does this by itself, with nothing behind it, make life and then cells start to divide? It's just so ridiculous. The book of Job in 26.8 and 36.27-28 describes a great deal about the scientific workings of the earth, including evaporation, condensation. And Ecclesiastes 1.7 gives the water cycle, the evaporation cycle. All things flow into the sea, and yet the sea doesn't fill up because it's constantly evaporating, going up and creating rain, and it starts all over again. The Bible talks about that. Man professing himself wise as a fool. Old ideas about the earth and about the solar system were very, very strange. If you look back into history... When Copernicus came along in the 15th century, he presented the idea that the earth was in motion. The earth was going 1,000 miles an hour in its rotation. People didn't believe it because they don't feel, didn't feel the motion. How can that be? He asserted the earth rotated on its axis once daily and traveled around the sun once yearly. A fantastic concept for the times. Because the church taught that the earth was the center of the universe. and Everything revolved around it. So, up to that point, Hippocrates, another great mind, said there were 1,022 stars in the sky. 1,022 stars. I guess he sat there and counted them somehow. Ptolemy said, no, there's 1,056. Kepler said, ah, oh, you're both wrong. There are... 1,055 stars. Why didn't they just read Jeremiah? It had been a lot easier. Jeremiah 33:22 says, we can't count the stars. So give it up, guys. You're not going to be able to count them. They're too numerous to be counted. Now we, we know there are 100 billion stars in our galaxy alone, and there are 100 billion, give or take, galaxies in the universe. And there's no end to the universe. Yahweh says of his kingdom, there should be no end. So there's a purpose for all those stars out there. I was just reading that uh, they've found 100 million planets out there that have their own sun, just like the earth. You think that's for, for nothing? You think there's no reason that Yahweh created that, that way for all those other planets? Or do you think maybe he's got a, a plan to populate other planets? We don't know. But it's sure fun to theorize, isn't it? Job said Yahweh hangs the earth on nothing. How did he know that? One Eastern book said it rests on seven layers of sugar, honey, and butter. <laughs> the Hindus says it rests on the backs of elephants. The Bible says he hangs the earth on nothing. There it is, out in space, floating around. When Job says he turns the earth like the clay to the seal, he's simply saying it rotates on its axis. Job said Yahweh imputed weight to the wind. It wasn't until the 17th century that they realized that a column of air has weight. It's said that George Washington died after doctors bled him to death because they thought I guess for some kind of virus, like a, like a cold. They, he died from it because they bled him to death. They thought to bleed somebody was to heal them. And then the Bible says the, the uh, life of the flesh is in the blood. Leviticus 17.11. Blood comes, uh, carries life. And when Yahshua shed his blood for us, that was the life he shed for our life. Perfect analogy. 
The Bible makes amazing prophecies that have already been fulfilled. This is, this is one of the outstanding proofs that the Bible is true and right. Did you know? No human could predict with such precision what the Bible prophesies about Yahshua himself. His identity, his name, his birthplace and burial. 700 years before he came, the Bible prophesied it. The likelihood that 50 of those prophecies about someone could be fulfilled <coughs> excuse me, is 1 in 10 followed by 157 zeros. And that's just 50 prophecies. He fulfilled 300 prophecies. You can't believe the Bible. Uh, I can't help you. I can't help you. 150 years before he was born, Isaiah prophesied that Cyrus would, would be king of Persia. He'd be born. He would accurately for, uh, even accurately foretold his name, his very name, 150 years before he was born, and his act of releasing Israel from bondage from the uh, Babylonians. Isn't that amazing? King Josiah was named uh, 360 years before his birth, given a name. 1 Kings 13.2. You know, prophetically, the Bible is without peer. There's nothing. There is nothing like the Bible. No wonder it's still the bestseller. No human could come up even close to the accuracy of it. It's miraculous. It's a miraculous book. Nobody knows what the future holds, but this book does. It tells what's in our future, what's coming on this earth. The Bible refers to the Hittite people 36 times. Because there was no outside record of the Hittite people, history didn't believe it. The skeptics couldn't believe it. They said the Bible can't be trusted. Until excavations in Turkey showed the Hittite Empire not only existed, was a very extensive. There again. Bible proves accurate. The same non-existence was claimed of the uh, biblical city of uh, cities of Ur, Sodom, and Gomorrah, and the Ebla tablets found it so in the 1960s when nobody believed it. Secular history ignores the dynasty of King David. You know, we, I remember in school we never talked about anything, any history of the Middle East. When it, when it impacts Israel, nothing. They wouldn't even talk about it. They ignored that King David even existed. But in 1993, and this is in our Restoration Study Bible, by the way, they found an inscription in Tel Dan by King uh, Hazael of Damascus. He boasts of a victory over a king of the house of David. There it was in secular excavations. It's the first extra-biblical evidence of David's existence. You can look it up in uh, page 547. They even got a picture there to go along with the text. The world may hide from it, hide from the truth, but the truth always comes out. It always does. Questions about the origin of the universe, the human race, why there is suffering in this world. It's all answered in scripture and how to eliminate it and what will happen to us in the next, uh, who knows, years ahead. Only the Bible can tell us. Only an omniscient creator, Yahweh, can explain it. Man can't. He tries, but, you know, some of the prognostications that people have, half of them are wrong. So anybody can figure, you know, I'm going to get half right, come up with some, some prophecy. Nothing explains, like the Bible, such scientific accuracy, prophetic accuracy, miracles from beginning to end, verified by many eyewitnesses. Nothing else explains its scientifically penetrating power and its ability to transform lives. Nothing. Nothing can do it like the Bible. When Moses died, 
they were, uh, Joshua was about to enter into Canaan. He gave a little pep talk to the people in Joshua 1, 7 to 9. I think it's a fitting affirmation of what we've been talking about. Only be thou strong and very courageous, he told the people, that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper whatsoever you go. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate thereon day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then you shall make your way prosperous. See the blessings when you obey, follow the word, become prosperous. And so, he says, to do according to all that is written therein. For then you shall make your way prosperous and you shall have a good success. Have not I commanded you? Be strong and be of good courage. They were about to face challenges of their lifetimes when they started entering into Canaan and all those foreign nations they had to conquer. They would have had to have so much faith. Be not afraid, neither be dismayed, for Yahweh your Elohim is with thee whithersoever you go. When the Apostle Paul went to Berea, he preached the truth to the Jews there. Verse 11 of Acts 17 says, These, these Bereans, these people there in Berea, were more noble, in other words, receptive-minded, they listened to what he said, not just blew it off, than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures every day to see whether these things were so. People would tell them, well, the Bible says this. Well, show me. Book, chapter, and verse, I need to know. And that's what we need to do. Someone says something like, show me book, chapter, and verse. And rarely can they show you even close to a book, chapter, and verse. They just spout off what they believe or what they've been told or whatever. What inspired these people to take the word seriously? That is the key. Why did they do it when the Thessalonians didn't do it? Why did they do it? Here were a people in Berea who are called noble because they did essentially what Joshua 1.8 says. They meditated day and night on the word. I remember my dad in his ministry he always talked about the Philippines. He loved the Filipinos. He was there like four times. And evangelizing, and uh, he said, I get up, anybody use the restroom, four in the morning, there they are, out on a table, reading the scriptures. They didn't have YouTube, they didn't have internet, they didn't have TV, they were reading the scriptures, and they, he said, believe me, they know the word. They know the word. But here are people in Berea, called noble, because they did essentially what Yahweh commands to do, to study the word. They diligently searched the scriptures and they did it daily with great eagerness in order that they might discern who was speaking the truth and who was not. Compare it with the word. Compare it, you know, with the, uh, with the gold standard of the word. If it's truth, then we got to know the truth. We got to know it. Then we have to follow it. Learn it and desire to live by it. The second part is the hard part. So many people give lip service, but when it comes to actually doing, you're talking gibberish to them, I guess, because they're not doing it. In Hosea 4.1, we read this. Listen to the word of Yahweh, O sons of Israel, for Yahweh has a case against the inhabitants of the land because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of Yahweh. They're swearing deception, murder, stealing, adultery. Sound familiar? My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Why? Because lack of knowledge leads to sin, and sin destroys. Bottom line. You mean it isn't there? Next statement. Because you have rejected knowledge, you have forgotten or ignored the law of your Elohim. So I will reject you. I'll forget your children. That's where you want to be. You get what you deserve. Yahweh's people don't want to end up there, so how can we learn the Bible and understand it rightly? 
You can't follow it if you don't know what it says. So what do you do? How do you learn the Bible? Somebody asked me, what? I'd like to study the Bible. I've never done it all my life. But now I feel compelled. How do I do it? Do I just start reading from Genesis? Or uh, do I take a topic? How do I study the Bible? I said, well, whatever works for you. If you have a topic you're really interested in, um, get a, a reference. Well, we have also the topics in our Bible. And start reading the passages. If it works better for you, start from Genesis and start reading. You can't follow it if you don't know what it says. So how about this? Take a book and read it. Read the whole Bible. Read, I mean, read the whole book. And then read it again. And then read it again. Read it 30 times so you really know that book. You know where it is on the page. Read the head, headings, the subheadings, and understand what it's talking about. I tell you what, you will know that book if you do that. And then go on to the next book. It takes a lot of effort. Sure it does. But you're going to learn the Bible. Memorize what the chapter headings say. And you'll know the word. You may not understand it all, but you'll know what it's about. And then you can start putting those pieces together. You'll never know what it's about until you crack it open and read it. In 2 Timothy 2.15, we have a uh, starting point. Biblically, that gives us the mandate for this necessity of Bible study. It says, be diligent, be diligent, keyword, to present yourself approved to Elohim as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Imagine you're standing there before the judge, Yahshua the Messiah, and he says, okay, you heard the word, did you? Yes, I did. Um, what, what, so how, how did it impact your life? Uh, well, I tried, and I did a few things, and uh, yeah, but how did it change your life? Uh, well, let's just say I could have done better. And that's what this is saying, don't be ashamed when you stand before the judge. How do we handle it accurately? Be diligent to present yourself approved to Elohim as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Handling accurately, you got to know it. Bottom line. How do we do that? That is what I want to know. I want to know and want to help everyone today to do so. Some helps, and I hope some understanding from this message. As we all know, the Bible was not written in English. Right at the start, we face a problem. Not only was the Old Testament written in Hebrew, but it was written in a kind of Hebrew that isn't even spoken today. My son tells about the time he went, we would, they took a tour with an archaeologist. Some guy is pretty eminent in Israel. He found the Pool of Siloam and the Siloam Spring. And uh, from there, we've extrapolated some ideas about where the real Temple Mount could be. Because they had to have water. They had to have tons of water. Hundreds of thousands of animals going through there the temple, all the time. Had to have water to wash all that blood. They actually have channels that channel the blood away. Anyway, he asked him, we, they went into the, the, the Museum of the Scrolls or whatever it is, or it's got the Isaiah scroll that, uh, of uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls there. And he, he says, Ellie, come here, come here. He says, uh, read that for me, read that. This is a Hebrew speaker, you know, in modern Hebrew. And he, he kind of stumbled a little bit. I... Uh, and Ryan says, well, can't you read it? He says, it's hard because Hebrew has changed in that time. You know, two, what, two, three thousand years? It's changed. As all languages do, they change. So he was having a time with, uh, with the Hebrew. We had a man came to the feast one time. He was Greek, spoke Greek. And I asked him, uh, can you read the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament? He says, no. I said, why not? Because the language has changed that much. Biblical Greek is not what they speak today. I didn't know all that. That was, that was an eye-opener for me, for both of those instances. But anyway, we have, so we, we, have to, we have to go at it from a disadvantage. But this doesn't, doesn't mean it's impossible. Because the scholars and so forth have figured out what the, the ancient Hebrew says and the Greek. But it's kind of like trying to read Chaucer today. You're, you're reading high German, basically. 
I took a class in it. <laughs> it's something else. Or Cajun English, a dialect of uh, Louisiana French. You try to figure out what they're saying sometimes. They have these sayings and things that, what, what are you saying? A lot of it's French. And the New Testament being translated from the Greek language is different from the Greek today. It's even called Koine Greek, which means common Greek. And uh, uh, it was written different from what we see today. It was different from the sophisticated uh, literary Greek because it was for the common people. So knowing the language is very important. Somebody has to know the language. If you don't, you've got to get somebody who does. So we go to reference books. We so to go to uh, Vine's Expository Dictionary of New and Old Testament words. We go to Jacenius or Brown Driver Briggs or uh, Thayer's Greek lexicon, um, Hebrew lexicons. Many great helps that really do help. Another difficulty we face is the culture gap that we have. That deals with not just the speech, but with the customs. Speech is connected to customs. And speech is idiomatic. I mean, they have expressions that we don't have. We don't know what they're talking about. We're familiar with certain idioms. Others, the foreign language, some guy from France or German might have a problem with. We say to people when we meet them, how do you do? What a crazy thing to ask. How do you do? What do you mean, how do I do? It's, it's who I am. That's what I do. Think about that. A silly statement. But that's an idiom. We, we do it to break the, break the ice, I guess. Imagine a foreigner coming to our country. And uh, he starts hearing idioms like, I smell a rat. Shoot off your mouth. Pay through the nose. Knock your socks off. Wet behind the ears. It's all Greek to me. Pardon my French. Well, he's going to say, please explain, translate for me, would you? Because I, I don't get it. And they have their own. They have their own crazy sayings too. All languages, I guess, do. Imagine the problem of trying to learn English that's filled with these strange idioms. Look at biblical idioms. When you deal with ancient language, you're also dealing with idiomatic speech. Idioms are all through the scriptures, and sometimes they give us problems when we're translating or trying to understand, like a Hebrew meaning of something. When it says the land flowing with milk and honey, I went over to Israel, and I was looking for the milk and honey. All I saw was rocks and sand. I mean, and hot. It was hot and no water, except in the Dead Sea, and uh, that wasn't going to help. Galilee, Sea of Galilee is great. Love that. But anyway, obviously something changed, or this was just an idiom. This was just a, an idiom that uh, Yahweh chose to talk about a, a land that has potential rich in resources. But did the land change when they got into captivity? I don't know. Could have. Look at Romans 12:20, another idiom. Therefore, if your enemy hunger, Feed him. If he thirsts, give him drink. For in so doing, you shall heap coals of fire on his head. I've often wondered about this crazy thing. I say, does it make any sense that feeding an enemy amounts to causing him pain and suffering like dumping hot coals on his head? I don't, I don't get it. But knowing that they cooked and kept warm with hot coals and they carried them in, in pots on their head to go from one place to another... Then it starts to clear it up. Oh, by giving him food and drink, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm giving him something good, not something bad. I'm giving him comfort like fire and hot coals. One explanation anyway. In translating, sometimes a mistranslated word can make a monumental difference in doctrine. Take Matthew 5.19. Whatsoever, therefore, you... Uh, shall whosoever, I'm sorry, shall break one of these least commandments and teach them to men, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. We got a question this last week. Somebody asked that. says, wait a minute. How can someone who teaches uh, that even teaches the, that uh, breaking the least commandments puts him in the kingdom? How does that work? 
How can he be in the kingdom if he teaches breaking the commandments? Well, the, the answer is, in the Greek, the word that's been translated in is en, en. It has all sorts of different definitions. One of them is among. He shall be called least among those in the kingdom. Doesn't mean he's in the kingdom, but they're going to call anybody like that least. Made sense to me. How can someone who breaks the laws end up in the kingdom? That's, that was the question. So understanding many things about culture, Hebrew culture, Greek culture, and pagan culture is often key in understanding the scriptures. There's so much to learn. How about the geographical problems to deal with? Deuteronomy 16.1, Abib. Abib, the first month. That's what we're in now. We saw the new moon. It starts the months in scripture. And Abib is a time of development of the crops of the barley. So the meaning of Abib is also a stage of barley. So we look for barley to find the month of Abib. Makes perfect sense. Geographics. They say the best way to learn your own language and its grammar is to study a foreign language, and I believe that's true. When you get into language and find out how they tick you start to understand better why your language is the way it is and why you speak the way you do. You know, Hebrew is actually easier to understand than Greek. Both of them, you've got to learn a whole different alphabet, but it's, it has a far greater uh, vocabulary in Greek than Hebrew. Its vocabulary is as big as, as English vocabulary, 300 and some thousand words, where Hebrew is like 100,000 words because it has a... Virtually every, every word is tied to a three-letter root, and from that root, you can extrapolate, go a lot of different places, and they're all connected by meaning. So you do a lot of memorization, but especially in Greek, and I'm not even going to attempt to learn Greek. It's just Greek to me. Sorry about that. If you understand the mechanics, mechanics of uh, uh, language, you can become better at understanding Yahweh's word. Well, I should wrap this up, running a little long, but I get involved in this. This uh, really is uh, kind of uh, fascinating to me. They also have uh, the culture gap. For instance, uh, head coverings. Why did Paul say that a woman in the assembly should wear a head covering? Well, because Yahweh says, one of the problems was that they were shaving I read they were shaving, the women were shaving their heads back then. And with that background, we understand the culture flavoring this message and why he said this, we have no other custom but to do that. He talks about women's hair being her covering, her glory. And in the assembly, when you're worshiping Yahweh, Yahweh didn't want anything to outglory him. So you cover the glory. Makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Perfect sense. They cover a glorious hair. Historical, of course, uh, um, context is often, often uh, an answer to things. I often wonder why Pilate was so indecisive when he washed his hands over convicting Joshua. Find out, Paul, or Pilate was up to his ears in trouble with, the, uh, with Caesar. He had really blew it three different times. And the last thing Caesar wanted was problems from the Jews. Because when they fire up, he's got problems. So uh, Pilate knew that, and he had to make a decision. Do I condemn Yahshua, keep the people happy, or not, and make people go to Caesar? Because they were, they were saying, I'm going to, we're going to Caesar if you don't do something. So he says, I'll just wash my hands. Take it somewhere else. Kind of like what politicians do when they don't vote. They are absentee. They say, oh, I'm not even going to vote. Anyway, uh, all these things start to make sense when you understand the, the social and historical events behind them. One more thing. To understand 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 in regard to speaking in tongues, glossa, you need to know two words in the Greek I've got to bring this closer so I can see it. Ethuasimos and 
Ecstasio. These two words, enthusiasm and ecstasy. And we talk about, obviously, that's what you see happening when charismatics go crazy, you know. And, uh, enthusiasm and ecstasy. It defined the nature of mysterious pagan worship, mystery worship. That's what they did. They got all charged up in a state of ecstasy and enthusiasm. Both of them were some sort of altered state so they could worship their mighty one, their God, their deity. They kind of flipped out and did bizarre and wild things. So that's why we don't do such things. But the biggest hindrances, brethren, to Bible truth is that people come to Scripture with presuppositions, things they've heard. And it's so much easier to learn it new the first time than try to unlearn a bunch of baggage like we've all, most of us have had to do. It's hard. It's difficult, especially when it goes against the grain, goes against family, goes against friends. When you've got to unlearn things like the holidays that aren't in the Bible and start following the ones that are. It's not easy, but that's what it takes. And Yasha says you will have, in this life, you will have tribulation, and that's part of it. But just think of the rewards. When it's all said and done, you look back in this life and say, you know what? That wasn't so bad. Look what I got ahead of me. An eternity with Yahweh, ruling as priests in this glorious, universal, unending kingdom. There's nothing to compare. What I went through 70 years or so in this world is nothing. Nothing. I'd do it again in an instant, and especially now that I know the end result, what it all leads to. It's, uh, it's f- fabulous. So, yeah, we put up with some things in this life that aren't easy, and we sometimes have to, you know, uh, bow before Yahweh and, and say, help me, it's, it's getting kind of tough now, getting kind of warm. And he will. His spirit will help you. So keep that in mind. Keep the faith. Keep on track. We're going to get there. Yahweh bless you.